know, not Florida, he's out on the East Coast, but um, he hit me up, was just like, hey man, you think, um, you know, we could try something a little different to open up our service. Um, that's one of the cool things about these churches. We try to use as many um, vehicles, I guess, to convey the gospel to people. So we're just gonna try that um, this morning. We um, wrote a little verse, little 16 bar verse, little nugget to throw at you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of ties into what Vince is gonna speak about this morning. So um, it's just gonna be acapella, real simple. You don't even gotta have like rhythm or anything. You just need to sit there. And, um, and if it's bad, you can tell me, just do it in love. <clears throat> so, uh, I see Lord knows that my head was turning. I guess I got to thank for these foreign women, black, white, Asian, and Latina. I'm just trying to serve my sister like it's Venus versus Serena. No rest for the weary. Feel it the morning after, covering your disasters. I'm lying to my pastors. I start faking when things get real. On a dark night, watch a Christian bail. But thought passed, I ain't talking black history. Thankfully, I ain't the center of the mystery. A Jewish man made all things new. You know the sweet baby Will Ferrell prayed to? <laughs> so hands to the ceiling, if grace is the feeling, cause the man dressed in linen came and died for these villains. Living water, my God still delivers. The city looked dry, but he fill up rivers. That's it. Woo! Woo! Give him one more hand. That's good. That boy good. All right, well, I'm stoked to continue on with Nehemiah today. And we're talking about distractions which is what that verse was about. Um, everybody turn to your neighbor real quick, and as only a true New Yorker could say it, look at him, give him a little attitude, and say, what are you looking at? <laughs> come on, come on, like a real New Yorker. Do it one more time. What are you looking at? Hey. That was good. I, you know what? I'm going to skip the intro, actually. That was a better intro than the intro I wrote. Look, here's the deal, guys. Distractions are a big deal in our life. Can anybody agree with me on that? Anybody ever struggle with being distracted? Keeping our eyes on God, on our glorious God and his plan for our life is, is really the key. And when that doesn't happen, when we get distracted, like John's talking about with the, the foreign women, foreign women, or anything else that distracts us. Our perception gets skewed. We get pulled off task. We get motivated by the wrong things. We end up running the wrong direction with the wrong identity and the wrong mission. But today, God's word is going to pull us back on track. Are you guys with me? You ready for that? So three points in today's sermon that we're going to pull out of Nehemiah chapters 6 and 7. Okay, the three points are, one, there are distractions. Two, why there are distractions. And three, how to deal with distractions. Okay? And if you'd like, there's some sermon papers up here and pens if you want to take notes. And um, yeah, those are available for you. There's also these weird little, this is cool because it's a school. Have you guys noticed these things that pull out and you can write on them? I couldn't figure it out for the first two weeks. I was thumping my head against the wall, but 
We have figured it out. There are distractions. Number one, there are things in our lives that we look to other than God and his plan that get us off track. And I want to ask you guys this question and enter into a dialogue real brief to kick this off. What are some of the things that distract us from trusting God and following his plan? Anybody? Frustrations with a boss or coworkers. Oh, yeah. Anybody been there? What else? What are some other things? Marco. Online chatting. Yes. And now they have Facebook chat on your phone. You can't escape. It follows you everywhere. What else? What's that? Car accidents. Absolutely. Yeah, car accidents will do it. What else? Women. Women. Yeah. And all the women said, or the men, right? Or the men, yeah. Self-will. Self-will. Ooh. Mm, how I want it in my way. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's big. There's, how many of you guys would agree that like, life is just full of distractions? So let's jump in here and see what Nehemiah, is gonna, this, this book, is going to teach us about distractions. We're in chapter 6, and we're picking up where Zach left off two weeks ago on verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, which is August and September, in 52 days. So guys, finally, the wall's finished, right? They had, 52 days ago, they had no wall, they had no protection, they had no hope. Their enemies were coming in and taking over the city whenever they wanted. And now, 52 days later, they stand behind a completed wall. That's that's amazing, right? And, and um, Jerusalem is safe. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know, this always happens, People see our, our works, they, they look at our lives, and they ask, why? Last night, we went to Book Off, which is a really cool Japanese version of a thrift store where everything's shrink-wrapped and, and categorized. It's awesome. It's not even dusty. It's cool. You feel like you're buying new items. And we went there, and we're looking in the dollar CD section, and I'm checking out. I can get Bon Jovi's Greatest Hits for a dollar. This is killer, right? I'm very excited. And there's this guy who's just kind of standing there, and Ivan comes walking up to me, and, and Ivan asks me a question. I'm in the corner, and the guy's right next to me, and Ivan comes over and asks me a question, and the guy goes, I'm looking here. <laughs> just like that to Ivan. And Ivan went, <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Um, and then, so I, I like took the kids and I was like, hey guys, just go the kids aisle. Go, go find mom. You know, you're okay. And I kept looking and the guy's just standing there and he starts mumbling. He goes, stupid kids, getting in the way, just going off. And, and then, you know, as a dad, I'm like, <laughs> but here's the deal. Like, I didn't know what was really going on inside of this guy. Like, I, I knew there was something really dark happening inside of that guy. I'm not ready to get in a fight with him, firstly because 
I would never get in a fight with anybody. I'm a Christian, right? But secondly, because I knew this guy was just a little off-center, right? When we, we see people, we see their attitudes and their actions, it tells us a lot about them. When we look on the outside, we can tell what's going on on the inside. Let me ask you a couple questions. Who are you at your core? The deepest part of who you are, what do you believe in your heart of hearts? Because that's what's showing up on the outside. We live from our souls. The scripture says it this way in, in Luke. Jesus is talking, Luke chapter 6, and he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And later on in Mark, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, for out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And then he gives a big list of them. If you want to know what somebody really believes in their heart of hearts, just look at their lives. Our actions and our attitudes are the fruit that comes from the belief that's rooted in our hearts. So let me ask you again another way. What beliefs are rooted in your hearts? What are you hoping in? What is the most powerful force in your life, the thing that dictates the quality of life, your, your hope, your joy? Because that, whatever that is, that is the Lord of your life. And that's what people will see when they look at you. And for an example, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that thing is your paycheck, right? That's, we talked about the workplace. Maybe it's your paycheck. And when, when, whoever controls that dictates your hope and your joy. And you're going to have all this, like, hope and joy when they smile at you and give you a high five and say, great job, buddy, you know? And then when they don't, what happens in your heart? You're freaking out. You feel anxious. You feel scared. Because the thing that gives you the quality of life that you desire is your paycheck. Or, or maybe it's your relationship. Maybe it's your plan for retirement or some sense of independence that you want to maintain. Or your kids. It can be anything, right? It can be anything that we look to. It's the thing you think about the most, right? The thing that's always playing in the background, that's in your heart. But whatever it is, you are pointing people to something. And that thing that you look to, that thing that you hope in, will control your life. Becky Pippert says it this way. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And here's the deal. If that's God, that's a good thing. If God is the Lord of your life, that is good news. It's freeing because, for instance, if he's your provider, you don't have to deify and worship your paycheck you can trust that God is the one who provides your income, and that paycheck is just the means he happens to be using right now to provide for you, right? That's good news. That's freeing. We don't have to freak out about our boss's, um, you know, level of approval of us. Or maybe, maybe we look to that person as the source of love, but if we realize that all love comes from God, that he is the source of love, then that frees us to really, truly love that person, and not crush them under the weight of their expectation and not be freaked out if they, give us, if they don't give us love and, and hope that they will give us the love that we crave because we're looking to them as a source of love. You see, you see how that works? 
Either God is the source of your security or you're looking to your retirement fund or your pension. What are you looking to? If God is the Lord of your life, it's a good thing, and people will take notice. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable, so that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They see your works and they glorify God. You see how that works? See, that's what's happening in Nehemiah. The unbelievers around realize that, that God is glorious. They realize that the people of God have built a wall that they never should have been able to build. And they glorify God for it. And they freak out. They freak out, right? It's, I mean, it's for good cause. Because in 52 days of blood and sweat and tears, when everyone was calling on the people of Israel to give up, to throw in the towel. Guys, it's impossible. Get out of there. You're in danger. Don't keep going. Right? In the worst of circumstances, they kept their eyes on God. And they continued to move forward. And guess what? As they looked to God, let me ask you, did they find him to be enough? Did they find God to be up to the task of helping them build that wall? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God is God. And here's something if you want to write it down. God is God. Your situation is not. Our situations are all in his powerful yet tender control. He's large and in charge. He loves you. He's for you. He's your deliverer. That's why David prayed in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's why Isaiah, when he prays in Isaiah 26, he says this, you keep him in perfect peace. How many of you guys want perfect peace? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. He trusts in the Lord forever for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Do you see the pattern here? This pattern of not looking to situations and people and other things as the source of life, as the thing that will give us hope and security, but looking to God. Because when we look to temporary things, when they're going good, what happens? We're happy. Yeah, it's great. And, and then what do we do? We keep looking to them for more, right? That person, that was the, you know, well, no, nah, that's a bad example. I'm trying to freestyle here. I'm not going to talk about my wife's kiss. Okay. That's a better one. Um, that, okay, here you go. That meal at the neighborhood, that hamburger was the best meal I've ever had. And then you take your friends there. And you tell them, you guys got to try this burger. It's the best burger I ever had. And they have a different chef in the kitchen. Has that ever happened to you guys? Right? Things let you down. Like you set them up on a pedestal. It's always going to deliver. It's always going to be amazing. And what inevitably happens, nothing's consistent. Nothing's eternal except our God. He's the one who is in control. He's large and in charge. And, and the cool thing is, I love this, what Paul says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And this is about looking at God as well and not being distracted. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see that? As we see him, something else happens. We begin to display him. The more we see him, in fact, the more we begin to display him. Because when we see him as he is, our hearts are freed from the fear motivations and the broken cycles that hold our lives captive and we're transformed to be like him. Our actions change. Our words change. The way we process things changes. And our minds get right and our hearts get healed and our lives get redirected. But it happens as we behold God. It happens as we see him. And then as we see him and believe him and live out of that, people see the fruit of that in our lives. They see Christ on display. It's, like, it's almost like they see everything else they've been hoping in. And, and it gets held up next to our God. All the other things, all the other people, all the other situations that they've been hoping in to provide the life they want. All of a sudden they see those things in light of holy, glorious, loving, gracious God. And they say, whoa, those things aren't God, he is. And that's exactly what happens here in Nehemiah. The nations around them see the wall built and they stand it on. They realize that the things they've been trusting in are weak. They say it. it says, they fell greatly in their own esteem. Whoa, their God is bigger. We got nothing. Right? We've got nothing. Answer this question for me. Is God for you? Who can be against you? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I think the most healing thing in our life is to see some of the people and situations and things that have been preoccupying our minds and hearts propped up and compared to our God. Like the, the guy who's, if you're a young lady here today, and that guy whose words you're just, you're hanging on to. And, and the days that he smiles at you, you like your heart's just, the birds are singing and there's like music in the air, right? And then the next day he's like angry and you're like, what's wrong with me? I'm a horrible person, or you know, or you get mad at me. What's wrong with you? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? The roller coaster of emotions that happens when we put our hopes on someone instead of God. But let me ask you a question: Does that guy love you as much as God loves you? Would he lay down his life for you? Would he have the power to take it back up again? Is he more glorious than God? Then why are we letting? other people's opinions shape our lives and control us. These people, they see what happens when people trust in God, these, these, these surrounding cities, and they see the lives these people are living, and they say, whoa, their God is God. How many of you want to point people to God with your life? To give them real hope, right? Not just a cool saying from Oprah on a Starbucks cup, but like, like actually give them the person of God to live with them, to guide them, to love them. How many of you have found that to be difficult at times? Yeah. Yeah. Why is it so difficult? Well, I, guys, we're human. We're weak. We are prone to wonder, and so often, I think what happens is this. Exactly what John was talking about. Our eyes get off of him and our eyes get off of the task he's called us to, and we get distracted. That's what happens. 
we get distracted, we look to other things, our situations take our thoughts captive, we get tunnel vision. It's like a spiritual myopia, like nearsightedness, and all we can see is like what's right there in front of our face. We forget about the big picture. And before you know it, we're looking for life elsewhere, and we find ourselves miserable and bound and hopeless, and we're like going to church on Sunday just to get a break. I hope the pastor says something. I hope the worship team brings it this Sunday. Man, I hope that when we go to gospel community this week, like I just have a breakthrough because I can't handle this. Any- I don't even feel like going. I don't, even, I don't want to be around people. Anybody been there? Yeah, right. Why? Why does that happen? This week it happened to me. I had a situation come up that distracted me. And in the moment, the situation seemed bigger to me than God did. And here's what happened. I got overwhelmed. I got stressed out. My stomach got all tore up. I got a fever blister. I was so glad I had a big mustache to cover my fever blister. And I stayed home for a day and canceled all my appointments. And you know what it was from? Stress. I got my eyes off Jesus. I got my eyes off my Savior, and I got my eyes onto the situation. Anybody been there before? So why does that happen? Why are there distractions? Point number two. Why there are distractions is this. You have an enemy. You get to verse 16, and like here's the deal. When we get to verse 16, it should be the end of the book, right? Nehemiah started out to build a wall, and he built the wall. End of story, right? They all live happily ever after. Isn't that the way stories work? But look at what happens next. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent for many letters from Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Johanahan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Had taken his daughter Meshulam, the son of Bechariah? No? <laughs> so Zechariah and Becca got married, and our, our uh, celebrity name for them was Beckariah. So I thought that said Beckariah. It says Berechiah. Okay. His wife. So anyways, the, Tobiah was connected. That's the point. Tobiah is connected to the inner court in Israel. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported all my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to what? To make me afraid. Tobiah is still trying to make Nehemiah afraid. All the other nations around are like, whoa, his God is God. They're responding to the fear of God, and Tobiah says, no, I'm going to make him afraid of me. Tobiah, the enemy, let's just apply it right now. The enemy of your soul wants to take your fear of God and distract you and get focused on the fear of man. Get focused on the fear of your situations and circumstances. It's like Muhammad Ali telling George Foreman, he's going to drop him in eight, right? That's what he said. I'm going to drop you in eight. And even though George Foreman at the time was like Tyson in his heyday, he had a 40-win streak. Undefeated, 40 fights. In, in uh, this round, he did beat him in eight rounds. And the New York Times reported this in 1974. It says, Ali got in Foreman's head and beat him before they ever entered the ring. 
That's what the enemy tries to do. The enemy wants to get in your head, distract us, get our eyes off of God and onto our situations and onto our struggles. He tries to puff out his chest and look bigger than he is and make your situations look bigger than they actually are. And he knows if he can get you living from a place of fear, you will miss out on the hope and the joy and the mission God has for you. And that's, guys, that's all Satan has. Smoke and mirrors. That's it. Diversion. He has no power over you. 1 John 4 says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Right? But the enemy wants to distract you. In fact, he spends all of his time and effort doing it. It's not like Satan's got this 40-hour-a-week job in a cubicle and then, like, in his weekends, he says, hmm, how can I mess with him? Like, that's all he's doing. He's obsessing over distracting the children of God, over diverting your attention from our glorious God, the source of our hope, source of our salvation, and onto the situations we find ourselves in. He wants you to think he can hurt you. He wants you to see how big your problems are. He wants you to give up or give in. Hey, look over here. Look over there. Look anywhere. Don't look up. Don't look up. Whatever you do. Look anywhere. That's what Satan wants to do. And on top of it, Nehemiah has this group of Jews who's standing in his court, straddling the fence, double agents. Whether they're, it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why they're doing this, whether it's malicious or they're just ignorant, but they are causing drama by participating in the enemy's plan against God and his purposes. Every city, every group of people, every church, every gospel community has this issue. People who are torn. People whose hearts are divided. People who swear allegiance to God one minute and yet live for another master all week long. And that's Satan's game plan. He wants to divide and conquer. He wants to divide your heart between God and the world so he can conquer you and take your life over. And even the most well-meaning followers of Christ can become pawns to our enemy. It happened with Simon Peter, right? You guys remember that story? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, and you are Simon, Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And what happens a few verses later? Peter comes to him and says, Lord, you'll never die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He just, call, he just said he was going to build the church on this guy, and then he calls him Satan. Was, was Simon Peter evil? No, but he was being used in that moment of weakness to try to distract Jesus from his mission. So Nehemiah has finalized the wall, but there's still unrest in the camp. The enemy is still trying to distract him, and people in the court have divided hearts. So there's this question. How does Nehemiah respond? How do we deal with distractions? Point number three, dealing with distractions, look to God and keep moving on. Look at what Nehemiah does next. Chapter 7, verse 1. And when the wall had been built and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had all been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. By the way, in chapter 1, Hananiah is the guy who had come to Nehemiah and told him about the news of the wall in the first place. So Hananiah has been with him every step of the way. He's proven himself. He's, he's not just a gossip. He's with him. And guess what? Hananiah fears God. 
Hananiah is the kind of guy who's looking to God instead of his situations. He's occupied with the fear of God, not the fear of man, right? Because the only thing that drives out the fear of man is what? The fear of God, yeah. And this guy fears God greatly. In verse 3, And I said to him, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. Verse 4, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So the first thing we see Nehemiah do in response to distractions is this. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't just ignore the distraction. But he works on them from a place of faith. Right? So Nehemiah is not unaware of the issue, but he's wisely responding to them. There's a difference between being aware of issues and letting them have control over your life. There's a difference between being aware that the enemy wants to attack you and walking around and laying in bed at night and cringing and thinking about all the scenarios with which he would attack you. You guys, are we tracking? And look at what else he does. He doesn't ignore them, but he also keeps on going with the mission. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who had come up first, and I found in it written, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity by those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. This is the list of people, of captives, that had come out of sin. They were in exile, and now they're back home, and they have this sense of family, right? Just like us. How many of you know that you were a captive of sin? You were in exile far from the Father, but now you've been brought back into a family. You've been loved. You've been redeemed. And now we're in a city right? Jesus is at work building his church, this kingdom, and he's calling us to participate in this, in this work. And, and in the rest of the chapter, which would take us way too long to read, there's 73 verses in this chapter, and it's a list of names, okay? But there's an importance to it. He lists the leaders. He lists if I could contextualize, he lists the pastors and the worship leaders and the security and the gospel community leaders and the, the people that do child care. Bless them. And the people who do audiovisual, Bless them. Right? And the people who attend regularly. And he takes account of them and celebrates their genealogies and records this amazing occasion because it's something to be thankful for. It came to pass. They made it. They made it. In the King James, it says they, it came to pass. You ever realize that with, with life, that everything is like that? Everything comes to pass. Nothing's permanent. No situation is going to totally destroy your life or, or be the main thing that dictates the rest of your life. It's all, it's all temporary. The only thing that's eternal is who? God. God. And it's like Nehemiah is saying, guys, we've made it. We've been through the worst of it. Let's take a moment and let's stop and let's celebrate. Let's take a snapshot of the people who were here for this moment. 
when we got the wall built, when we did the impossible, when everybody said there's no way we could do it. But I have a question for you. And this is an important question. What's Nehemiah going to do about Tobiah, the enemy? What's he going to do about it? It's not even talking about that. When I read this text, I was like, and Nehemiah wanted to make me afraid and sent me letters. So I did these things. Where's Nehemiah's show back up? I'm sorry, Tobiah. Where's Tobiah's show back up? There are threats. There's still an enemy, you know. Nehemiah, aren't you aware? I bet if Nehemiah was here today and came in, and if he could magically speak English, he would say, Oh, I know we had problems, but I knew something else. My God is bigger. My God is bigger than every problem we face. You see, if you believe that, if you believe that God is in control of every situation in your life, then there's never a reason for despair. There's always hope. Come on, somebody, if you believe that, smile with me. If the joy of the Lord is in your heart, notify your face, right? (laughs) There is joy and hope for every situation because of who our God is. Instead of worrying and lying awake at night and obsessing and getting his mind on the situation, he keeps looking to the God of his situation. The way uh, an old friend of mine told me, he said, Vince, a barking dog can't stop a moving train. You know, there's that old town and that dog would lay there in front of the house and all you do is he'd wait for that train to come by. Man, that train would come whizzing by and here goes the dog. You know, going crazy at it. Is he stopping the train? No. And guys, if God is for you, nobody can be against you. If God is for you, you're that moving train. And the enemy's that barking dog. Your situations, your critics, everything else in life, it can't stop you, it can't destroy you because of who our God is, because of whose you are. So the 73, this is the last verse of the chapter. So the priests and Levites and gatekeepers and singers and some of the people, the temple servants and all of Israel lived in their towns. It tells me here, when I, when I wonder what Nehemiah did in response to Tobiah, it tells me something. Sometimes we just have to keep plowing. Like, like the horses in downtown, they have the blinders on. Sometimes we need to put the blinders on a little bit and just focus on Jesus and focus on the task that he's called us to. Because what happens to the horse if they don't have the blinders on? Right? They'd go crazy, right? It's too much stimulus. The horse would rear and kick and stomp on little puppies and stuff, and we don't want to see that happen. Put the blinders on. But that horse is literally a picture of my heart when I'm not keeping my eyes focused on Jesus. I'm everywhere. <laughs> Crushing puppies. If my eyes aren't on Jesus. It's true. <laughs> Trying to recover up here. It's like that door song. Keep your eyes on the road and your hands up on the wheel. So we just got to keep moving sometimes when the enemy's barking. We just got to keep going. The question isn't whether you're looking at something or not. 
The question is what you're looking at and why. Because your eyes are always focusing on something. Let me ask you guys this, and I'm going to ask you guys to apply this instead of me coming out with all the application I think would be good for you. Let me ask you what you think. Here's the last question. What are some ways we can keep focusing on Jesus? What are some of the ways we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus and not distracted? Marco. What's that? Continual, whoa, prayer. Continual prayer. Mm, that's important. Matt. Mm. Yeah, everything, every situation, even the people in my life, it's, it's temporary, right? We're here, like, for three score and ten, about 70, 80 years, if you're lucky, if you're really lucky, maybe 100. And that's, and that's, that's all we have. But then eternity is forever, right? So we can see things through an eternal perspective, see our situations in light of an eternal God in light of the, the life that we're moving on to on the other side of the resurrection. That's great, yeah. So prayer. Community. I need my brothers and sisters to remind me continually, to point out the blind spots I'm not seeing, the struggles in my life that, oh man, you're going to get distracted here. This thing's going to pull you off task. You're off center, man. Let me help you out. Let me, let me, I'm seeing something you're not seeing. I love you, man. Let me help you. Yeah, what else? Turn, turn off technology? Yeah. Yeah, turn off your Facebook notifications on your iPhone. Those things drive you crazy too? You guys are like, we don't, we don't have Facebook, Vince. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what else? What else can we do to keep from being distracted? Yes. Meditation. Mm, meditation. So continual prayer and meditation. Yeah. Listening to the voice of God, resting. What else do we meditate on besides just the Word? Meditating on the Word of God. You know the clearest place you can see a picture of Jesus? In the Scripture, right? He was the Word made flesh. Like, He is the, the Word of God in the flesh. And when we read the Word of God, we get a great picture of what God is like. And it keeps our eyes focused. Yeah, what else? Accountability. Accountability. Some would say that's the greatest ability. Some would say accountability is the greatest ability. Yeah. Good. What else? Um, when I was depressed, I, I came across a verse, um, take your thoughts captive for Christ. Mm. Um, challenging each of my thoughts with what the truth was and what God really thinks about that. Mm. And um, that helped me have Christ's thoughts and service, like serving others. Mm. Yeah. Good. Yeah, so, so one, one thing we're saying is taking every thought captive. Because we have a lot of thoughts that pass through our brains all the time, right? But how many of those are we capturing and focusing on saying, wait a second, do I really want to be thinking this? And saying, no, I'm going to focus on Jesus. And also, I think another way of saying what you said, Natasha, is focusing on the mission because it gets us out of our head, so to speak, and off focusing on ourselves and all these other situations. If we get focused on the mission sometimes, it's the good kind of distraction. It's distracting us away from the things we shouldn't be focused on, and it's focusing us back on the thing we need to be focusing on, right? Purpose, yeah. So God and his plan for our lives. Yeah, Kenny. You kind of touched on it earlier when you were talking about 
Jesus, your face was set. I love that picture. You know, these are all really good things. These are things we need to do in order to keep ourselves from being distracted. And we, we know the formula. We've been walking through this quite a bit. The law says do this. The gospel says done, and the Spirit empowers us to obey. So as we wrap this to a close and prepare our hearts for communion to really work through some of this in smaller groups, I just want to walk through this. Because if we're not careful, the other thing we could do is we could do this. We could say, here's the formula, guys. Stop looking around at your situations. Pray more. Focus on God more. Take every thought captive. Do, do, do these things. And then you will get the life you want. And if we're not careful, what we end up doing is saying that this all boils down to what we do. And we miss out on the most important part, the gospel, right? It's not all about what we do because Jesus Christ has done it for us and that frees our hearts, right? That frees our hearts. So I could say I need to pray more. I need to surrender to his will. I need to read scriptures. I need to walk in community and and see his glory. But if we stop there, then all we're left with is a recipe for disaster because we can't do it on our own. Even though we want to, I think, Oftentimes, on our best days, we will fail at doing those things. And we become frustrated at ourselves, frustrated at other people, frustrated at God. And we get crushed under the weight of this moralistic religion. But here's the formula. And then our hearts end up remaining unchanged. So how does the gospel free our hearts? And I think what Kenny said there is key. Jesus, your face was set. Hebrews, Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, this is the Nehemiahs and the Hananiahs, let us lay aside every weight and encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's he tell us to do? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him He was looking ahead. What was his joy? What was the prize he was seeking? It was you. It was you. Reconciliation with you. He loved you so much he went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus always did what the Father asked. He was in continual communion with the Father. He lifted up his eyes. It was his source of strength. And because he lived his life in perfect relationship with the Father, free from all the distractions, he didn't ever once let himself get distracted. He was perfect, and he was able to fulfill his purpose. In fact, the gospel says, like, like Kenny said, he set his face like a flint to go toward Jerusalem. He knew the cross was coming. He knew what was waiting for him there. And even though it was the hardest situation that he'd ever been in, he looked up to heaven through the whole process. Even those final hours, he kept his eyes on the prize because he knew the Father was bigger than the worst situations he was facing. 
Even the death that he was walking toward, he knew God was bigger than that. And he willingly laid down his life so that we could have life, so that we could have the walk with the Father, so we could have the joy, so we could have a life free from distractions. The gospel says, done. And the Spirit empowers us to obey. I I just want to close your eyes for a second. I want you to think about this. That because of the gospel, because you've been filled with the Spirit of Christ, now you're free. Not to save yourselves, but to realize we've already been saved. And the Spirit empowers us. The Spirit frees our eyes from distractions. He reminds our hearts about God's love for us. And as the Spirit lifts our eyes to see God in His glory, we're underwhelmed. Underwhelmed by all these lesser things that gripped our hearts compared to our glorious God. The Spirit causes us to stand in awe and worship Him and it gives strength to follow Him. There's this old song I used to love. We used to sing all the time. I haven't heard it in a long time, but the lyrics are, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now I want to just tell you guys, as, as we start, turn on some music and as we get ready to come for communion, that God is for you, that he loves you, that he sent his son, that the, in the gospel, Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of God's heart for you. And that he lived a life he couldn't live, free from distractions. And he died a death that all of us should have died so that we could have life with God and so we could have the spirit empowering us to live a life that we could never do on our own. So I want to encourage you guys as you move to our communion to just in in small groups, uh, two or three today, just um, remind one another about that. Confess your areas of distraction with each other and and ask for the spirit to empower you to rise above it. Ask for people to help remind your heart of the gospel, to free your heart from, from the other things that we're looking at and to look to Jesus. Amen? Amen.